Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would give us a full measure of your spirit to know and to understand and to comprehend your word. Lord, give us good teaching from me, but Lord, we know the teaching from your word is good. And so we ask, God, that you would be gracious to us even now. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God. Help us uh, to learn from this text, to be equipped, uh, to be challenged, to be encouraged, Lord, to be rebuked where we need to be rebuked. Build us up, Lord God. Help us uh, to be those who hear this word and put it into practice, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, many of you, <clears throat> maybe most of you, know the story of Jonah. And the story of Jonah is simply this, that Jonah goes off into a distant location called Tarshish. He's trying to get to Tarshish because God has called him, if you'll remember, to go and preach uh, the good news, as it were, to the city of Nineveh. Now, now Jonah is a, is, a, is a Jew. He's an Israelite. Uh, the Assyrians is this massive empire that reigned just prior to the Babylonian empire that reigned during this time that we're going to be sp- talking about with Habakkuk. And, and Jonah is called to go and proclaim the good news to Nineveh. And here's the good news to Nineveh. Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the good news for them. What's good news about that? The good news is that, that a gracious God has sent a prophet to tell them that so that if they will repent, God will restore the people of Nineveh. Now, that's not part of the, the story that really Jonah wants to give them. Jonah hates the Ninevites. Jonah hates the Assyrians. Why? Because they've crushed his nation of Israel, and they've scattered the northern tribe all over the known world at that time. So Jonah doesn't want to go. So you know that, that basic part of the story, at least most of you do. When God calls him to go to Nineveh, he goes where? The exact opposite direction, right? He gets on a boat, and he heads for Tarshish, which is probably somewhere on the Spanish coast. But he doesn't get there a great fish, right? We mostly say a whale because we, well, those are big fish, right? But a great fish swallows him and eventually regurgitates him back out on the beach. And God's message to him is, go to Nineveh and preach what I told you to preach. This time he goes and he preaches to Nineveh. And he brings that message to them. Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Ninevites repent. And the king of Assyria repents. And Jonah is as happy as he can be, right? He's not happy at all. He's actually very angry about that. And when we get to Jonah chapter 4, he goes out to the east side of the city after he's preached this gospel message to them. He goes out to the east of the city, the scripture tells us, and he builds himself a shelter. And there he sits in the shade of the shelter and he waits to see what God is going to do to Nineveh. And what he wants God to do to Nineveh is he wants him to wipe them out. Right? He wants him to destroy the city. But God doesn't do that. Jonah is really, really mad, right? And God says to him, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, I do. And I am angry. In fact, Jonah says, I'm so angry, I'd rather die than have to see what you're going to do as you show mercy and grace to these people. I hate these people. And so God has to do some reckoning with Jonah. He has to help Jonah begin to see that God is a big God and he has big plans as well. Habakkuk is in a similar situation. Now it's a different kingdom. Now it's the Babylonian kingdom that destroyed the Assyrian kingdom. And it's this Babylonian kingdom that is pressing down hard on the southern kingdom of Israel upon Judah and upon the people of of Judah that Habakkuk represents as their prophet. And so Habakkuk has decided 
that he is going to wait on God and see what his response is going to be to Habakkuk's two complaints, right? Jonah goes out and builds himself a shelter and sits in the shade and says, I'll wait and see what God is going to do. Habakkuk's going to do something a little bit different, but he's going to wait on God and he's going to see what God is going to do based on his two complaints. Now, Habakkuk's waiting seems to be, at least on the surface, more respectable than Jonah's waiting. And to be perfectly frank with you, by the text itself, we can't tell whether or not this is a great act of faith in Habakkuk or whether it's something in between faith and doubt. But we're going to talk today about what it means to wait on God and to be patient as we wait for God. Not an easy thing to do, not an easy thing for me to do, and I suspect not an easy thing for you to do either. We're going to draw from our text today Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Just one verse today as we see Habakkuk take his stand before God and to wait on the Lord. So let's stand together as we read from God's Word here, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. I've got it on the screen here for you behind me. These are the words of Habakkuk the prophet. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so Habakkuk, like a sentinel in a guard tower, takes his stand He takes his stand before God. He's going to wait for further developments. He's going to wait for further revelation from God. He's going to be patient, at least as far as we can tell, and wait for God to respond to his complaints, to the burdens now, two of them that he's laid before God, and he's waiting now to see what God is going to do. Now, here's why I think Habakkuk is going to wait now. I think he's going to wait because he's got nothing else to do. (laughs) There's nothing else that he can do. Right, he's laid his complaint before the Lord. He's laid his burden there. Twice he's laid it before him. He said what he needs to say. Now what is there to do? There's really nothing more for him to do than to simply wait on God. And friends, I think this is the first little point that we can pull from this this morning. There are some times when that's all we can do. That's all we're left with, right? We have laid our complaint or our burden before God. We have prayed And now we're simply asking God to respond, and there's very little more that we can do. Now, I know this has become a saying within Christianity. It's certainly said here at LifePoint. I've said it myself, and I don't think it's wrong to say it, but we need to be careful when we say it. And that is simply this, when we say to somebody, well, all I can do is pray for you. All I can do is pray. That's That's the last thing I can do is pray for you. Now, that's a good thing to be praying for people. But if what we mean is, I've tried everything in my own power, and now all I can do is pray, I'm not sure that's the best way to approach this. Because what we're saying, friends, is at the last resort, we'll finally pray to God, when the reality is what? should be our first resort, right? And when we tell somebody, all I can do is pray for you, what we should mean is, that's the most important and best thing I could possibly do for you. I can maybe help out with my hands and my feet. We, we just talked about that, or, or Nathan talked about that. When we go down to Laurel Mission, we go down and we get busy. We begin to build. We begin to help people. We, we distribute things to people. But the reality is, is the most important thing we could ever do for Laurel Mission is to pray for Laurel Mission and to pray for Nathan and Lindsay and for their kids and their engagement and their ministry there. It's not a last resort. It's a first resort. And I think what what Habakkuk has done here is he said, well, I've done everything I can do, and now I'll wait. 
And I think Habakkuk needs to learn some important lessons about dealing with his God, and he's going to learn those lessons. That's what's so beautiful about this little prophetic book in the Old Testament is we get to see the progression of this man of God who loves God. He's beginning to learn what it means to interact with this God and to believe in this God, to really believe in this God, and to trust Him, and to be patient, and to wait on this God. Sometimes God calls us to do that very thing, to simply be patient and to wait. But we don't like that, do we? We generally want things to happen right now. Right now is what we want, right? My granddaughter, my my grandkids spent the night here recently, and my granddaughter asked me for something that I had to say, not just no to, but no, not right now, but in a little while, right? You'll You'll be able to do that. And she thought about it for a second, and she said, but, but Poppy, I want to do it now, right? Which it's reasonable. <laughs> she wanted to do it right now. And my answer had to be, well, I get that, sweetheart, but you can't do it right now. You have to be patient and wait. Now, <clears throat> this is a, a two-and-a-half-year-old, but I don't know about you, but I act like a two-and-a-half-year-old sometimes before God, right? This is what I want. Be patient. But God, I don't know if you know, I want it now. <laughs> I want this done now. I'd like you to accomplish this right now. I don't want to wait for that. And sometimes the answer is, Jim, no. And sometimes the answer is, you're going to have to be patient. I'm not talking about some, some audible thing I'm hearing. I'm talking about just a realization that our God sometimes just says we need to wait. Sometimes God calls us out to wait. Maybe you remember the story of Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings, he goes to Mount Carmel in Israel, and he has this incredible encounter with over 400 prophets of Baal, a, a, a false deity. And he has this engagement with them, and God shows up in an incredibly powerful way. And Elijah, as it were, wins the day. And what does he do? Does he say, yes, I'm going to go out in the strength of the Lord now? No. He hightails it. He runs. He flees out into the wilderness. And there God meets him and provides for his needs with 40 days of nourishment in one meal and then sends him off to Mount Horeb, called the Mountain of God at that time. And there Elijah goes to the Mount uh, Mount Horeb and he goes into a cave on the mountain and he begins to whine and to complain. I'm the only prophet left. Nobody else serves God. And so this is what happens when that takes place here in 1 Kings. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and maybe you remember the rest of the story. A great fire comes, but the Lord is not in the fire. And then there is what? Do you remember? Just a faint whisper that comes to him, and he says to him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous and zealous for God, and I'm the only one left, right? The exact same story. But God has called him out 
of the cave and out of his whining and his complaining and put him before him and said, now you will stand before me. And God responds to Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only prophet left and you're not the only one who loves the Lord. In fact, there are, do you remember? 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. 7,000 people who are right there with you. Come, he says, stand before me and you will know the truth. I will reveal truth to you. This is what Habakkuk has to learn. This is what I hope he's learning, right? He's not going to go off and hide in a cave. He goes up on a tower, as it were, I think symbolically, and there he's waiting on the Lord, and he's waiting for God to respond. And not only is he waiting for God to respond, but he knows it's very likely that the Lord is going to respond with a rebuke to him for these complaints. And now he's trying to put together in his mind, and how will I respond to God's rebuke? How am I going to answer to the response that I'm about to get from God? He's learning what it means to wait before God and to be patient And he's learning, friends, that we can't always figure things out on our own. We can't always get all the pieces put in place ourselves. What do we need? We need the revelation of God in our lives. That's what we need. We need to hear from God. We need to know what God has to say about our circumstances. We need to hear from God what He has to say about what's going to take place, what's good, what's not good. Because we've got our ideas, don't we? Habakkuk has a good idea of how God can fix this situation. Change your mind and don't bring the Babylonians down upon us. Generally speaking, friends, when I pray to God, if I'm honest, in my mind I know what the best thing that God could do, right? If you're having a hard time paying your mortgage, what's the best thing God could do for you? Well, He could take care of your mortgage. That's what He could do, right? He could make sure that somebody writes you a check, and that happens sometimes, We've almost always got in our mind how God could fix the problem. But God isn't a puppet on a string for us. And God has His ways. And how are we going to find out those ways? We need a revelation from God. We need to hear from the Lord. How does that happen almost always in our lives? It happens right here, friends. It's with God's Word. We need to know about this God, and we need to search His Word, and we need to know what God has to say about these things, because He's a God who knows the future as He knows the past, right? We have a hard time just figuring out the past. None of us have got the future figured out, but God has that all under control, and He knows what's best, and Habakkuk is about to learn that lesson, and we need to learn that lesson as well. Habakkuk is playing the role of a prophet here, and he's doing what he should be doing. He is standing before the Lord on behalf of the people of Judah. He is their prophet, and he is now standing before the Lord. And now what is the Lord going to say in return? That's what he's waiting to hear. Is this God that he's come to know, Is he going to demonstrate himself to be a God of justice and mercy and grace, as Habakkuk knows he's done so many times before? Or is he going to be a God who says, now I'm coming down with judgment, because Habakkuk knows that's possible as well. As the people of Israel come into the promised land, God separates them into two, the the 12 tribes, into, into two halves, and he sends one to Mount Gerizim. And at Mount Gerizim, he says, there I will pronounce to you all the blessings of the covenant I will make with you. And we will pronounce those, and you will speak them out over the people. And the other half, you will go to Mount Ebal. 
And there I will speak to you the curses of the covenant. What happens when you break the covenant? And there you will speak out the curses over the people of Israel. They'll know the blessings of God if we keep the covenant, and they'll know the curses of God if we do not keep the covenant. What Habakkuk is trying to figure out, I think, is which voice am I going to hear? Am I going to hear the voice from Mount Gerizim or the voice from Mount Ebal? Is God going to say, now I'm holding you to the stipulations of the covenant which you have broken time and time again? Just so you know, if you haven't read ahead, that's what God's going to do. You're going to have to know the stipulations of the covenant. But Habakkuk's trying to figure it out. Which one, God, justice and mercy or justice and wrath? Which one can we expect from you? Friends, remember the prophet, or not the prophet, but the apostle Paul in Romans 11 teaches us to consider both the hardness of our God and the gentleness of our God, both the sternness, he says, of God and the mercy of God. We need to learn both. We need to learn that God is a stern God, that He does hold us accountable, that He does call us up to a different place as followers of Jesus Christ. But we must also know the mercy of God and the softness of God and the gentleness of God. And Habakkuk is learning these lessons, and there's more for him to learn as well, as he stands in the gap, as Moses stood in the gap for God's people, as Ezekiel, the prophet, stood in the gap for God's people. In Ezekiel 22, we see that, again, God has had it with the people of Israel. It says that they'd become a stench in his nostrils. And he calls out to Ezekiel, the prophet, and he says to Ezekiel, the prophet, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I might not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Notice what he says there. Not I figured out new ways to punish them. That's not it. All he's done is he's returned their way upon their own head. Friends, God doesn't have to figure out a new way to discipline us. He just allows our actions to come back upon ourselves. He doesn't stand in the gap for a season. And we begin to learn what our actions and our thoughts and our behaviors may actually do in our own life if we do not have God and Christ on our side. We begin to learn that discipline, what it means for God to be distant from us, as it were. He doesn't have to come up with new ways. It's just, I will visit upon you what your own actions have brought upon you. That's what I'll do to you. That's what God says He will do <clears throat> to the people of Israel. I will return their way upon their own heads. Job says this about God in Job 34. There is no dark place, he says. There is no deep shadow where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine men further that they should come before Him in judgment. Without inquiry, He shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. There's nowhere to go hide, friends. And the psalmist asks, what if, I, what if I were to go to the depths of the ocean? Well, there I find God. What if I were to go out into the deepest recesses of space? God's there too. Shall I go hide in the night? That's where God is. 
He inhabits the light. I certainly can't go there, he says. There's no, there's no dark place for us to run away from God. There is no place that we can say, God won't see me here. Now, that's both a promise for us to know that there's no place that God isn't going to be with us. It's also scary, isn't it? To know that one day we will stand before God and He will bring forth all the things that we have said and done. And if we know Jesus Christ, He'll be there to stand in the gap for us. And we will not have to pay. It will not come back upon our heads. But for those of us who have rejected Christ, there will be nobody standing in the gap. And then we'll receive simply what we've done. God doesn't have to come up a new way to punish us, friends. We'll simply receive what we have done. I think Habakkuk knows he stepped out onto thin ice here with God. And he's, repaired, he's prepared himself now to respond. He knows God's going to, going to, to, to speak. He's no God, he knows God is going to reveal himself to him, and he's trying to prepare himself for that. And I think we need to understand, friends, that it's okay for us to wonder about God. And it's okay for us to question and to ask. It may be okay at times for us to even express our anger about issues, although I would simply say, be careful about that one. We see that in Scripture, and we see God responding positively at times and not so positively at other times. It's okay for us to wonder about a God that we cannot wrap our minds around. God knows, the Scriptures say, that we are dust. He knows we can't figure all this stuff out. And therefore, it's okay for us to wonder about that, to faithfully inquire of God. Habakkuk is trying to figure out, have I faithfully inquired or have I been presumptuous before God? It's what Job tries to figure out most of the book of Job, too. It's what Elijah's trying to figure out at Mount Horeb. What do I say to this God? And we need to be careful when we are presumptuously assuming that we can put God in the dock, as it were, and say, now you'll answer to me. Because, friends, that's not happening. That's not how our God works. The Scriptures do not reveal that God to us. And so how do we... No, what's the difference? Well, here's my best help for you. You probably know the difference, and I guarantee you God knows the difference between you being presumptuous and you inquiring of the Lord. And I'm sorry, but as your pastor, I have to say, you're going to have to figure that one out yourself because I don't know what you're thinking, and sometimes you don't know what you're thinking. Sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking, and so what can we do? We go before God and we learn to wait on God, and we learn to be patient and to hear from God and to look for His Word and His revelation so that we may begin to understand Him even better. That's what Habakkuk is figuring out, friends. And this is what's so beautiful about this short little prophetic book in the Old Testament. We get to see a prophet who loves God right from the beginning begin to figure out more and more about God and begin to put pieces together and to share with us about the pieces that he's put together. He'll never get them completely figured out. Neither will you and neither will I. And I suspect we'll never get that figured out even in heaven, friends. 
We're not going to get there and then someday way down the line, right, five millennia down the line say, I finally got them figured out. I suspect that's not going to happen. Our God is vast and immense and His ways are beyond our ways and we'll always, always be learning about this God and figuring out more and more about this God. <clears throat> the good news when we do that, when we do that in glory, we will do that without a sin nature. But here we're doing it with a sin nature. And we're trying to figure all this stuff out the best we can, as Habakkuk is trying to figure these things out the best he can as well. And so he's waiting on God. And as Job eventually learned, and as Habakkuk will learn, and as we must learn, God is not accountable to us, friends. He doesn't have to explain himself to us. There is no accountability there. That accountability goes only one way. And we don't have to cajole God into being kind or merciful. And we don't have to to remind God of all of these things. We don't have to somehow convince Him to take action. And here's a hard one for us. He doesn't need us to defend Him. He doesn't need us to stand up and stand up for God. How dare you say that about my God? God doesn't need our defense. He can take care of Himself quite well. And so when we hear people who question our God, here's the one that I hear frequently, what about the Old Testament where God's killing all these people and wiping out people left and right? Which incidentally, God isn't killing people and wiping out people left and right in the Old Testament. But God does kill some people. And here's my response to that. Is our morality better than God's? Do we know right and wrong better than God? Did we create people? Do we have power over life and death? How many of us gave life to anybody? I'm not talking about birth. I get that, ladies. You got that one figured out. But I'm talking about the life that's placed in the womb. How many have done that? We don't control life, friends, and we do not control death. But our God does, and He doesn't need us to defend Him. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have answers for some of these things. We should have some answers for some of these things. But the answers to a world that is lost usually goes unheeded. Why? Because the world that we live in, friends, calls good evil and evil good. And God said to the prophet Isaiah, woe to them who call good evil and evil good, who exchange day for night, who drink something sweet and call it bitter, or taste something bitter and say it's sweet, who do the exact opposite of things. And that's our world, friends. We've turned everything upside down, haven't we? And some of us are part of that problem, and we're not part of that solution right now, because we're falling in line with that. And so when people say it's a good thing for a man to be in a woman's locker room, all of a sudden we start thinking, well, maybe that is a good thing. But I'm here to tell you, I've been in guys' locker rooms. And ladies, you don't want to be in there. I don't want to be in there most of the time. (laughs) And you don't want guys in your daughter's locker room or vice versa. And men can't have babies. I don't care how many times they tell us they can. They can't. And they can't nurse their children. That doesn't happen. At some point, we have to be able to say, 
this doesn't make sense. And here's why it doesn't make sense. Because it's not true. It's not true. So woe to those who say good is evil and evil is good. And we have to come to our senses. Yes, we have to submit. But that doesn't mean we have to believe lies, patent lies. At some point, we have to wise up. Because in our culture, friends, it is true that the emperor has no clothes. (laughs) When the little boy says, but the emperor is not wearing any clothes, and everybody else is saying, oh, yes, he is. It turns out in that old fable by Hans Christian Andersen that the emperor really is naked. (laughs) we got to open up our eyes, and we have to be willing to say, that's not true. That's not right. That's not profitable. That's not justice. That's not what God declares to be true. How do we know the truth? We need a revelation from God. That's how we know the truth. We have to go to His Word, friends. The psalmist says, I believe that I will look upon good in the land of the living. I will see the good of God in the land of the living, Psalm 27. Why do I believe that? Because I wait for the Lord. I take heart and I wait on God for Him. That's how I know the truth, friends. That's how we know the truth. We have hope for a future, friends. Those of us who are here today who know Christ, we have hope for a future. And the world mocks it and derides it. But God says it is true. It's as true as the seat you're sitting on right now. Yes, we have to wait for it. Yes, we need to be patient, but God has declared it to be true. There is a hope for us so that one day, though a thousand may fall at our side, ten thousand at our right hand, we will only observe it with our eyes and see the punishment of the wicked, as Moses gives us in a psalm, Psalm 91. And how can we know that? How can we believe that? Who is that promise for? It is for he or she who dwells in the, in the shadow of the Almighty. That's who that promise is for. Who will say, you are my God, my rock, and my fortress. In you I place my hope. That's who that promise is for, friends. That's who will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. That's who the promise is for, for those of us who will believe what God says. How do we know what God says? Only God can reveal that to us, and He's revealed it to us in His Word. He's revealing it to the prophet Habakkuk. He's waiting on God. He's taking His stand. He's in His tower. God, speak to me, and God will speak to him, and we will learn from it because the Holy Spirit saw it fit to put it onto paper for us so that we can read it and we can know about this God. Friends, Paul the Apostle says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation itself waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's the hope we're looking for. 
Because we know, he says, that creation itself has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, Paul says. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. There's our hope, friends. God will bring this creation that has fallen into decay, and it has, hasn't it? I mean, it's beautiful. It was beautiful this morning. Well, actually, it was dark this morning when I got here, but it's, from what I understand, a beautiful day out there. It's a beautiful creation. And what we see in its beauty from the Swiss Alps to the, to the mountains of Colorado to the, to the prairies of Indiana, right? It's beautiful, and it's fallen. It's not what it once was. God created it and said it's good, and then it fell into bondage with us, with you and me and with Adam. It fell into bondage. Paul says, here's the hope we're looking for. Here's what we're waiting for patiently. God will bring it all back again, again, and he will redeem it with us. Friends, the day is going to come when we are standing in a new earth with a new heavens in a new Jerusalem, and that's not way off in the cosmos someplace. It's right here. This is where we're going to be on a new earth. God will redeem this earth and us with it, and he will place us in bodies that will no longer know decay, the bodies that will no longer know sin. That's what God is going to do in a new world, in a new creation. Therein lies our hope, friends. Now, what do we do? We wait on God. We wait patiently for that day when God will do what He's promised to do. And all along the world around us will say, boy, that's a fairy tale. And we'll say, it's the power of God unto salvation, right? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And for some of you here today who do not know Christ, most of what I've said today is foolishness to you. And my hope and my prayer is that God will get a hold of you and will change your heart. And when he does that, he will change your mind. And what was once foolishness to you will become the power of God unto your salvation, as it is for me and so for so many of us who know Christ here today. We must be patient. We must, as Paul says to the Corinthians, judge nothing before its appointed time. We must wait for the Lord until he comes. Then God will bring into the light everything that's hidden in the darkness and he will search the motives of every man's heart. That day's coming, friends. <clears throat> and we need to make sure that we're not judging everything before the appointed time. Let's let Jesus pass judgment on these things. When he comes, he will take what's hidden and he will bring it into the light for us. Then we'll see what justice is. Then we'll see what truth is. Then we'll see what goodness and grace and mercy really looks like when Christ comes back again. Now, I know some are saying, Jim, <clears throat> give me something practical. Give me something practical. So, let me give you something practical. Spiritual disciplines will help you grow in your faith and help you begin to understand God better. You won't understand Him completely, but it will help you to understand God better. What do I mean by spiritual disciplines? Get into the Word of God and read that thing, friends. Most of you got one sitting on yourself somewhere at home. 
Get into the Word of God and begin to read the Word of God. And I know some people say, I don't have time for that. Here's my challenge to you. Five minutes a day. Get into the Word of God five minutes a day. Well, that's not very long. No, it's not. But at the end of the week, if you'll do it five minutes a day, you'll have been in the Word how long? Seven times five equals 35 minutes. Well, that's not very long. It's 35 minutes longer than you were in it the week before. Begin to build spiritual disciplines. Pray. But it just sounds like my voice is bouncing off the walls. Keep praying. Friends, when I first started reading the Bible when I was a teenager, it was gobbledygook. I didn't get it. But my brother who led me to the Lord said, keep reading it, keep reading it, keep reading it. And now 40 years later, I can say, some of it I still don't get. (laughs) But a lot of it I'm getting. I'm getting it. Practice some spiritual disciplines, friends, and you'll get to know this God better. And then what seems fuzzy to you won't be as fuzzy to you later on. Engage with God. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you. How do you start? Here's my best advice to you. Start by starting. (laughs) You got to do it. And nobody can be there, most likely, to make you do it. Start by starting. And then you'll have started. And it may be difficult, you know, for a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. But hang in there. God will show Himself to you. This is His revealed Word. This is how we know the truth. Begin some spiritual disciplines if you haven't done that yet. Get into the Word of God. Pray and ask God to show Himself to you. And the fuzziness and the distance of God will not seem so distant and fuzzy to you in the future. So friends, do that. Let's wait on the Lord, shall we? (laughs) Let's do that together. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's be patient. Let's wait for God to reveal Himself. And let's let Him begin to expand our understanding of who He really is is, not who we think He is, but who He really is. That's my goal. I hope it's your goal as well as we move forward, not only through the study in Habakkuk, but into our future as well. Wait on the Lord, my friends. Amen? God, I pray that you would help us to do that, to be those who are patient, to those who wait, to those who are who have an eagerness to know and to learn more about who you are, Lord God. Show yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us, Lord, I pray. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.